I was reminded earlier this evening that this weekend is Valentine's Day. All right? Are you ready? Okay. How many of you just give a card? No, you do more than a card, right, Norm? Hopefully you do more than a card. Yeah, you marginally, yeah. How many of you do a card and a meal? Like take them out to dinner. How many of you do a card and take them out to dinner and a gift? Man, there's a bunch of people in this room that's in a whole lot of trouble this weekend. <laughs> they just are, you know? I, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a big gift giver. I used to be when I was younger and ro- more romantic and, and uh, shame on me for not being that way now. I got older. And it's just, everything's so much more effort now. Uh, plus, we didn't do gifts a whole, I mean, we weren't really banner stellar people at giving gifts when I was growing up, my family. The, the best gift story I ever heard was on Christmas. I, told, I think I've told some of you this. Uh, one Christmas, my uncle got my aunt a 12-gauge shotgun for Christmas. And she got him a diamond ring in her size. So it worked out great for both of them. So you can see that's where I get my gift-giving ability right there. So, All right, we got to cover lots of stuff because there's some good stories tonight. So I want to do the quick recap and so we can get to some new stuff. Here's what we looked at last week. We started with this big old hot topic and Jesus discussing, discussing divorce and remarriage. And, and remember the scenario here. Uh, the Pharisees come up to him and they ask him a question. They don't really want to know the answer. They don't care what the answer is. They're just trying to trip him up. You know, it's a question. It's one of those questions like, have you stopped beating your wife? You can't answer that question. If you say yes, then it sounds like you've been beating her, you know? And if you say no, then it sounds like you're still beating her. It's just a tough question to answer. This is the kind of question the Pharisees are asking Jesus because they just want him to say something that will discredit him. And so they want to know if it's lawful for a husband to divorce his wife. Now, unfortunately, in that culture, it was very patriarchal, so wives didn't have the same ability to divorce their husbands. Uh, and, and all of this stemmed from a, a disagreement between two schools of thought. There were scholars that, that interpreted the passage in Deuteronomy to say that if, it's, if the passage in Deuteronomy says that a man can divorce his wife if he finds an indecency in her. Now, some scholars says, well, that's talking about sexual immorality and fidelity. Other scholars said, no, that could be anything. And so you have one group that's holding really strong to the sexual immorality thing, and then you have another group that's saying, hey, if she burns your toast in the morning, she's out of there, you know? Um, And so this was the argument. So they're trying to pull Jesus into this argument because you know how it is when you get in the middle of one of those arguments, you're going to offend somebody. You know, if you take this side, the other side hates it. And, uh, And so Jesus does this masterful thing. These are Pharisees. They're scholars in the law. So he says, well, what does the law say? which I think is brilliant. Well, but they pull what they believe is a loophole out of the law. They go back and say, well, Moses said that we, a man could give his wife a certificate of divorcement. He allowed that. Well, first of all, they dodged what he, his question. He said, what does the law say? Not what does Moses say. He said, what does the law say? 
They said, well, Moses allows us. And he said, okay, let me try this again. And he takes them all the way back to creation, to God's original intent. And, and God's original intent before there was sin, before there was a fall, was that husband and wife would enter into this one flesh relationship that would be that growing, close, intimate relationship until one of them died. Now, we know sin has entered the world and marred things, and it's not as nice and easy and, and as God intended. But Jesus said, just because of that, never forget the original intent. So it's an interesting interchange between the two of them. And, uh, and after he makes his point, I love this, after he makes his point, he goes back into the house, the disciples follow him, and the disciples say, oh, then it'd be better not to just be married at all, which is probably not bad advice sometimes, really. Um, for some of us, it's a little too late, but it's not bad advice. It's just interesting that they say, if marriage is this serious, then you probably shouldn't even be getting into it to start with. That's a view that I wish more of us took. It really is. Uh, I'd say more about that, but we've got to press on for time. So we went to the next story, and the next story was about Jesus welcoming children. So, and, and remember, all these stories are taken in the context of Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the final week of his life in Jerusalem. So all of these things are happening in route. So they're traveling towards Jerusalem, and parents start bringing their children to Jesus. They want him to bless them in, in whatever fashion he will. And, and one, one gospel even says he, they were bringing infants. And his disciples saw this, and they just thought, this is too big of an imposition. You know, he's got too big of things. There's too many things he needs to do. This is just an imposition. And they start shooing the parents away, saying, you know, go on. He doesn't have time for this. And Jesus sees this, and he's a little hacked, actually, and says, and he kind of berates his disciples a little bit and then says, suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And, and so he basically tells them that this is why he's there and, and that we are to receive the kingdom like children. And he didn't explain what that meant, but we talked about it last week, and that means we, we should receive the kingdom trusting and believing expectant, humble. This is the attitude with which we receive the kingdom. And then we did a couple of takeaways like these. When faced with a question of what's right and what's wrong, look for God's intent more than you look for his allowances. We have a bad habit of looking for the loopholes. I had a daughter that could find a loophole in anything. I mean, anything. If you didn't phrase it meticulously, you almost had to be lawyer-like with her because she would find the loophole. It's just kind of a bent with us. And so a lot of times, and I'll give you a good example of this. Should I tithe on the net or the gross? That's an example of this, right? And so when you're, when you're faced with a question of what's right and what's wrong, don't look for what God will allow. Look for what his intention is, and that'll help you answer that. And we, did one, we just did two takeaways last week. When it comes to the kingdom, we are called to be childlike, not childish. Unfortunately, we're often childish rather than childlike. Okay, so that's a quick recap because we have some really great stories this evening, starting with this one. Jesus and the rich young man. Uh, so take your Bibles, look at uh, Mark chapter 10. We're going to use the Mark passage. Mark chapter 10. This, uh, you hear me say this a lot, uh, but this is one of my favorite stories. 
This is really one of my favorite stories. There is so much you can kind of dig out of this story and, and make sense out of for your life. Uh, so let's just start. Let's look at the first verse in verse 17. Mark 10, verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. He's talking about Jesus as Jesus was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, if this is the only information you had about this man, what could you say about him? Oh, come on, we gossip about people with a lot less than this. What could you say about this guy if this is the only information you had? He's a sinner. What else? He's a seeker. Keep going. Will it help if I told you I don't have a right answer to this, so you're okay either way? He's looking for something he's got to do. He seems eager. He seems, uh, he seems genuine. He's sincere. Uh, He's earnest in his pursuit. He seems to be earnest in his pursuit of God and doing what's right. He knows he's missing something, yes. Otherwise, he wouldn't be coming to ask the question. I mean, so, and there may have been, he may have had completely different motives, but just from that verse, this is what you can glean about this man. He's, he's just eager. He wants to know. He's tried hard, apparently. And, and you know that from, from some other things in this verse. It says he ran. It's very unseemly in that culture for men to run. They just didn't run. That's why in the parable of the prodigal son, when the father runs to meet the son, uh, it's just, that's not unheard of. I mean, it's, I mean it's, excuse me, that's unheard of because it was unseemly in that culture. But this man runs to Jesus. So that tells you how, how intent he is. And then he knelt. He knelt before Jesus. He called him good teacher. So he's got some really good motives going on here and some good intentions and some good intent. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Doesn't that seem like a kind of a rude way to respond to this guy? I mean, he's run up to you, he's knelt on his knees, he's called you good teacher, and you pop off with something like, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Why, why would Jesus respond this way? Maybe testing his motives. Maybe see how much he knew. I mean, we've seen throughout these studies that, that Jesus always turns from, from people's behavior to their relationship with him. They always turn from what do you, he always turns them from what do you know about the law to what do you know about me. And, and it seems like this is kind of what he's doing. We don't know for sure, but it just seems, it just sticks out. It's a little odd. It's a little different. It's like my wife greeting me saying, I'm so glad to see you, and me saying, really? You know I come home every day at this time. Why are you glad to see me? That's just not a good way to respond. So it strikes me as odd that he says that. So maybe he's trying to test this guy a little bit to see if he's really paying attention. I don't know. But then he goes on. He goes on to talk. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. 
do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now, what, do you, what stands out about this? What, his, his response, what sticks out to you about it? There you go. He takes the last part of the Ten Commandments, the law, that focuses on your relationship with others, but he didn't deal with one's relationship with God, which is pretty interesting, I think. Uh, Now, one of two, well, before we get there, uh, and, and maybe... When he says this, maybe this gives Jesus a clue of what's really going on with this guy. As if he needs one. He already knows. But, but it kind of gives us, the reader, a clue of what might be going on with this guy. Now look at how the man responds. He says to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, one of two things are going on here. Either this young man is prideful and arrogant and he believes he has completely followed the law. Or he's sincere in his attempt to live as he should live towards others. One of those two things are happening. Doesn't really change the course of the story. But just trying to get into his head. Remember, I always tell you, put yourselves in these stories. What would it have been like for you? And so either this man is, is a little on the arrogant side and saying, ah, I've done all that, got that all covered since I was a kid. Or he may be saying, since I was a boy, I've been sincerely and intently tried to treat other people the way they're supposed to be treated. It's probably the latter. It's probably the latter. So Jesus gives the young man an answer to his question. The guy asks, what do I have to do to be saved? So finally, didn't you hate that with your parents when you ask your parents a question and they would talk like forever and you're saying, I just want an answer to my question. Jesus has been talking for a while and he's finally going to answer this guy's question. So, look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, not three, not four, not five, one thing. Go and sell that you have, all that you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. That's the answer. Here's my question. If Jesus loved this man that much, and it says Jesus loved him. You don't see this in Scripture a lot. You see this with very few people where it says, and Jesus loved him. So, So when you see that, and we know Jesus' love was equal for everyone, so when you see this, it means this is something special. Jesus loved this man so much, why make the answer so hard? Man, it got really quiet in here now. Yes? So, 
So if this man had answered, I love the Lord, the God, with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. If he'd answered kind of the first, I keep the Sabbath, I don't use God's name in vain. If he'd kept the first four of the commandments, and those were the answers he'd given, what do you think Jesus would have told him? Hmm? Same thing? I think he probably would have focused on the last part of the Ten Commandments if he focused on the first. The rule of thumb is Jesus is always going to put his finger on the place you need to grow. And I hate it. It's just uncomfortable. But he always knows. I mean, I can cover up. We can talk about how much we go to church, how many Bible studies we're in, what a good person we are. But he always puts his finger on the thing we lack. Now, is he doing that to try to defeat us, discourage us, be punitive? No, he's doing that because he wants us to grow. He wants us to grow. So it's just a fascinating interchange between these two. So Jesus loved this man, and he was willing to usher him into the kingdom. He just needed to do one thing. That was it. Now, it granted... It was a hard thing because look at verse 22. Look at the man's response. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, if you're down to your last dollar and somebody says, give me your last dollar, what's the difference, right? Here. When you have a lot, you just keep hanging on to it tighter and tighter and tighter. Some of you are like me. You have things in your home that you haven't used in the last five years. But if somebody says you need to get rid of that, you go, oh, no, I can't do that. And some of it you don't even have an emotional attachment to. You just think one day I might need. The more we have, the more we hang on to. And, and, and some things are easier for other than either easier to let go of than others. If, uh, if, you know, if you told me, let go of the clothes you have, <laughs> no big deal, I'm not that attached to them. I need enough to keep me out of jail. That's all I need. Um, you know, if you said, get rid of all your fine china in the house, I don't have a problem with that. My wife doesn't either because we don't have fine china, but, but I wouldn't have a problem with that. If somebody said, get rid of all your books, that's going to be a struggle. I still have books on my shelf from seminary 26 years ago. I have not opened them once. I've gone to the shelf, pulled them off to get rid of them, to put them, and I have to put them back. I might need that one day. That's the same my mom says that. I inherited it from her. Uh, it's just the way it is. There are some things that, that we have trouble letting go of, and I'll be doggone if that's not the thing Jesus asks for. Always. He did it with Abraham. It's the whole story behind Abraham. And so this man walks away sorrowful because he had great wealth. 
Lots of possessions. So he only needed to do one thing. Now, look at, look at what kept the man from accepting Jesus' offer. What kept him? We know he had great possessions, but what kept him from accepting the offer? Yeah, what kept him from doing that, though? Pardon? His possessions. What was it about the possessions? Yeah, I know he wouldn't let go of them. What I'm trying to get at is why. Love of money, you can't love God and money. Somebody back here, what'd you say? He valued those things. He valued them more then. His idols. You know what makes, there's an answer underneath all of those that makes all of those answers true. And it's fear. It's fear. I don't let go of something out of fear that I might need it. Or I won't get it back again. Or or it might not be provided again. And so we trust those things to take care of us, whatever those things are. And it could be a myriad of things. But we trust those things more to take care of us than we trust God. And, And so it's not, I have lots of stuff. It's not that I love my stuff more. It's, I'm insecure. That's where I find my security. That's where I find my protection. That's where I find my my provision. That's where I keep the fear away. Jesus puts his finger right on it. Right on it. And, and, And this is what keeps that from happening. Now, look what happens next. Look at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Does anything disturb you about that verse? Think of it. Think of it relationally. Now, remember, for us, when we do Bible study, we're thinking about theology and principles and application and all that stuff. And oftentimes, I mean, that's good, but oftentimes when we do that, we miss the point. And the point is relationship. It is always about relationship relationship with God. Relationship with others. That's why God says in the beginning, it's not good that man should be alone. It's not that he can't match his clothes. It's not good to be alone. It's about relationship. So God has this this young man with much promise, is stellar. He's sincere. He's tried all of his life to stay close to God. And he comes and he runs and he bows down and says, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And, and that word inherit is even a kind of an interesting word, but we won't do that this evening. And, 
And Jesus loves him. It's so much so it's put in the text. Jesus loves him. And Jesus says, this is the one thing. Do this and you got it. And the guy gets up and walks away with his head down. Now, if I was writing this passage, the next verse would have said, and Jesus ran after him and stopped him and said, wait, wait, you don't have to do this. There's a better way. You can do this. Come on, it'll be easy. I'll help you. And he didn't. The guy that he loved and had so much promise, he let walk away without a word. Does that disturb you? I find that haunting. Because if he'll let that guy do that, he could let me do that. I know the right answers. And a lot of times I don't do them. And he lets me just walk away. That's the sad part of this story. This is a story that's very sad. It's not, I mean, there's a lot of theology in here, don't get me wrong, and there's a lot of principles in here, but this is a sad story at its core. A really sad story. And and I find it interesting in verse 23, it says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, it's almost like when the guy walks away, he looks at his disciples and they're just dumbfounded. They can't believe it. And so he looks around and sees the response of their face, and so he has to answer that. And he says in verse 23, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Uh, Now look at the next verse. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again to them, children how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of heaven and he goes on to say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle or for a rich person to then for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven why were the disciples so amazed I mean they've been three years with Jesus they've seen lots of weird stuff right why are they so amazed Right. In the Jewish culture, if you had wealth, it was seen as a sign of God's blessing, that God approved of you. He was making you wealthy because you were doing the good stuff. And and so they were amazed. And yet these are the very same guys who Jesus looked at and said, leave everything and follow me. And they did. What happened between then and now? I mean, think about it. What creates a change where some person's willing to say, hey, I'm dropping it all, I'm out of here, I'm following Jesus. And then they get to here and they're going, really, you have to give up all your stuff? I mean, it's a big change in three years. What happened? One word, life. Life happened. I quit a lucrative career with an oil company in Texas to go into ministry and didn't think anything about it. And if someone said right now, God wants you to pack up and move across the United States, I would probably be kicking and screaming. What happens? Life. Life happens. The more we accumulate, the more rooted we get. 
the more that we have responsibility for, the less chances we want to take. Life happens. And I just, I, it just struck me how different these disciples were over the course of three years. We cannot afford to let that happen to us. And yet it does so easily. So easily. I have no idea what point I'm trying to make to you, but this just, this just is rooted in my brain from this story. Uh, look at verse 25 again. There's a couple of things in verse 25. It says uh, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Wouldn't you think he'd want to make it easy? Right? You want it to be easy for your children to come home. You would think. We cannot soft sell the difficulties of being a true disciple of Christ. It's costly. Cost Jesus his life. Cost the disciples his life, their lives. And, and, and he spells it out very plainly. It's difficult. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Of heaven. Now, there's other translations or, or, or other, other versions of the text that add the phrase, how difficult it is for those who trust in riches, okay? which makes sense based upon the context of the story. But then verse 25, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I mean, it's a great word picture trying to thread a camel through a needle, but uh, but that's not what it's about. That's not what that's about. Now, there's two possibilities. The Greek word for camel and the Greek word for rope are very similar. They're very similar words. So it could be that in translation, this got mixed up, and really what it meant was it's easier to thread a rope through a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. That could be one. Another possibility is there was a very narrow gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle which would have been really hard for camels, especially loaded down with stuff, to get through. And that really fits the context of the story a whole lot more. There's this big old camel, he's loaded down with bags and packages and boxes and everything, and he just can't get through with all that stuff. And uh, you all have heard this, uh, the, the monkey trap, right? You put this piece of fruit in a jar for monkeys, and it's just big enough that they get their hand through, but once they grab the fruit, then they can't get their hand back out, and they don't let go of the fruit. Well, all they have to do is let go of the fruit. It comes right back out, but they don't do that. With so many of us struggle from the monkey trap, and that's what this young man was wrestling with. Uh, either way, you see the meaning's the same here. Entering into the kingdom of God requires sacrifice, Whatever is standing in your way of entering the kingdom of God, you got to jettison it. You just got to jettison it because it's not worth that much. It's not worth the trade-off. All right? And all of this leads the disciples to react. Look at verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And then Peter, as he's prone to do, blurts out. He jumps in the middle. And Peter says this. Peter began 
to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. I mean, it's like, hey, don't forget, we were here first. We dropped our goods and came. We've done this. I don't know whether he's looking for a pat on the back or, or what. But Jesus goes on to tell him in verse 28, after, after Peter says this in verse 29, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now, not later, a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land. Now, if he'd have stopped right there, I'd have been a happy camper. Because this sounds great, doesn't it? You know, whatever I give up, I'm getting back a hundred times. This is not a name it and claim it gospel. This is not if I sow one car, I get back three. This is not what he's talking about here. But listen to what he does when he goes on. He gets back a hundredfold in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, land with what? persecutions, trials, tribulations, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. We've heard that before. We've heard that before. We're going to hear that some more also. Uh, Notice that Jesus throws in hardship. If these people sacrificed everything to follow him, it did not get them out of the hardship. This idea that if we're good followers of Christ and doing what we're supposed to, that we will not have to suffer hardship, that is baloney. I'm just telling you, because the only man that walked on the face of the earth and was sinless, they nailed to a chunk of wood. So we're probably not going to escape the tribulations either. So we get both the blessings and the persecutions. They're a package deal. You can't have just one or the other. It's like your spouse. When you say, I do, you get the good stuff about them and the not-so-good stuff about them. Uh, I often tell in, in, in premarital and sometimes in weddings, I tell this story. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau and, or, and Jacob... Run, steals his brother's birthright and his blessing and all this, and so he has to run for his life, and he, he goes to his Uncle Laban's house, and he spots Rachel, and he says, man, I won her. You know, this was the, the first real Valentine heartthrob he'd ever had. I won her, and so he strikes a deal with Laban. I'll work seven years for her if you'll give me her for my wife. And Laban goes, deal, deal. And so... Jacob works seven years. He's earned Rachel. On the wedding night, somebody swaps brides. I still want to know how that happened. There had to be alcohol involved. The lights were off. I don't know. But he wakes up in the morning with the wrong bride. It's not the one he wanted. And so he goes to complain to Laban, who's very shrewd. And shrewd says, hey, I'll tell you what. If you'll work another seven years, I'll give you Rachel right now. And so at the end of all of this, 
Jacob has two spouses, the one he wanted and the one he didn't. This is marriage. We all get two spouses, the one we wanted and the one we didn't. And by the way, your spouse got the same deal. Uh, and, and, and so this is what happens, and this is what Jesus is saying. When you follow him, you get both. You get the blessings you want and the persecutions you'd rather not get. Uh, both come in life. All right, any questions about that before we move on? What time is it? Yeah, we got a little bit of time. Questions about that one? Some of you are saying, I'm so lost, I don't even know what he was talking about. All right, let's go on to another one. Let's look at this one. The parable of the vineyard workers. This is another great story. This is kind of a... Any of you used to watch the uh, Twilight Zone? Yes, yes, I loved that show. Uh, because you would watch it and you'd get sucked in, and then at the end, just something would happen and just mess you up. You just didn't see it coming. This is kind of one of those stories. Now, Matthew's the only gospel writer that gives us this story. He's the, and it's, it's a parable. Jesus is telling a parable. In Matthew's account of Jesus and the rich young ruler, or rich young man, Matthew records the last words of Jesus as these. Look back in, uh, let me just get over to Matthew. Go to Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew 20, but let me catch up with my mouth here. Here we go. The last verse in Matthew 19 are these words. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So those are the last words he speaks before he launches into this story. So it gives you a hint. The context gives you a hint. This is what this story is about. All right? The story is about the last being first and the first being last. After speaking those words, then he uses a parable to explain those words. So look at Matthew 20. Look at the first seven verses. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, which was a day's worth of wages, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, so about three hours later, he goes back out again, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, three hours later, and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, I mean, there's only about an hour's worth of work left to do here. But about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand there idle all day? They said, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call all the laborers. And, put them, uh, and pay them the wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Okay? Let's stop right there for a minute. Okay. So after telling that first shall be last and the last shall be first, then he elaborates on what the kingdom of God is like by telling this story. So this master gets up really early in the morning, and he goes into the marketplace. Now, Many of you may have not, have any of you remember a time when day laborers would just kind of hang out in one spot and they would kind of be picked up early in the morning? 
Yeah, used to see a lot of that in West Texas with migrant workers. And, and, uh, and, and in this economy, the people were so poor, they were so heavily taxed, they were so indebted that they had to do anything to try to make ends meet. Because if they didn't make ends meet, they ended up selling family members. Which, if you have a teenager you want to get rid of, that might not be a bad idea, but it, it just wasn't good business. So, so they would go out early in the morning and hang out, hoping somebody would need, some, need workers. And so this master goes out really early in the morning, and he hires workers and sends them out into his vineyard. And then he goes out three hours later and does the same thing. Three hours later, does the same thing. Three hours later, it just... To an hour before quitting time, he does this. So then when he calls, and and he gives them a denarius. Here's what a denarius looked like. See, it would fit just a small coin that would fit in your hand, maybe the size of a nickel or something like that. Um, This was a day's wages. And you would collect one each day that you did the work. And so after all of this, it gets to be quitting time. He he gives specific, specific instructions. And we read it again. Look at verse 8 again. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages. It's very specific. Beginning with the last up to the first. Now remember, the context of this parable is what Jesus said when many who will be first will be last and last will be first. So that it, it ties this parable into what Jesus is talking about. And... What were the instructions? Pay the ones hired last first. Why is that part of the story? Because it fits with the context of what Jesus is trying to say. So far, so good, right? So far, so good. But as Jesus is prone to do, he turns this story on its head. It's a Twilight Zone kind of story. And it shocked his listeners. So look at verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Each of them received a denarius. Verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought they had, would receive more. I mean, they worked all day. These people worked one hour and they got a denarius. We've worked all day, so we're going to get a lot more than that, right? But each one of them received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now, this part of the story is meant to rankle you. It's meant to, whether you say it or not, it's meant to have something go off inside of you that goes, Yeah, that's not fair. That's not right. Why would they do that? You can't do that. It's meant to do that. How would you feel if you worked an eight-hour shift and the person who came in for a half a day got the same pay as you? You would be miffed, to say the least, right? Or how would it feel if you'd worked for the company for 30 years only to find out that a two-year employee was making the same pay as you? It'd be hard to swallow, wouldn't it? Well, this is what they're facing. That's why they felt... Violated. That's why they complained so vehemently. But look at the master's response, verse 13. 
But he, the master, replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Because remember, he told the very first workers he'd pay them a denarius. After that, he didn't tell them. He just said, hey, I'll pay you what's fair. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Verse 14. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? Now, some of your translations may say, do you begrudge me, or is your eye bad because I am good? But it's basically saying, do you begrudge my generosity? What's the point the master's trying to make here? Whether you like it or not, what's the point he's trying to make? So she's saying the point is when it comes to salvation, the people that were saved at a very early age and the people that were saved minutes before they die, one shouldn't begrudge the others. They, they both get heaven, right? Anybody else? What do you think? Salvation is salvation. No matter when you get it. <laughs> he's saying part of the story is about the master gets to do what the master wants to do, right? If you've raised more than one children, you have heard this at least one in your life. One time, they've got this. It's not fair, right? I used to get so tired of hearing that, I resorted to saying fair is a place with a Ferris wheel and cotton candy. It's not here, you know. Something in us wants everything to be fair. You know the ludicrous thing about that is if we got what we wanted and it was fair, we would all be lost. Hopelessly lost. And yet we still argue for fair. It's just fascinating. Uh, He's basically saying, I paid you what I agreed to pay you. You know... Maybe he's making the point, if you're angry with me because I'm generous to those who didn't earn it, that's a reason to be angry is my generosity? Really? Or if I'm, if I'm just towards you, why do you care what I do with my resources? It's amazing how we want to tell God how he needs to do things. We say, we know God's sovereign. And then we go, God, that's not fair. Those don't go together. It's part of the human condition. We wrestle with it. Now, remember, the parable is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And it's also a response to the questions that the the disciples ask before the parable. I mean, look, go back to Matthew 19. Look at verse verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? Okay, so always keep the parable in context. 
And in the context, it's in the context of this question that they ask, who can be saved? Okay. How did the master, how does how the master paid the, the servants relate to that question, who can be saved? And, and you've answered it. You know, it's, it's not about how much you work. It's about my generosity. It's not how much you've earned. It's how much I'm willing to give you. Uh, Jesus puts the closing bookend on this parable. Look at Matthew 20. Look at verse 16. Here's the bookend. So the last will be first and the first will be last. It's sandwiched. Remember 19, verse 30, that started this parable? Many who will be first will be last, and last will be first. And now this, many who are last will be first, and the first will be last. Same thing, just reverse the order. Jesus is making a big point here. He's going out of his way. He's used this first and last thing one, two, three times in this story. So this point is really important. Now, here's the deal with this. I always thought that this phrase, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, meant that the little guys in the end would get retribution and the big bad guys would get what was coming to them. You know, the first shall be last. They'll be put in their place. And the last shall be first. I always thought that that's what this meant. I always took for granted that that's what it meant, that God would even the score. But when I studied that this week, that's not what this means at all. That's not the point of the parable. The point of parable is this. We are equal recipients of God's grace and mercy. Even if we're latecomers to the party. We are equal recipients. It's about equality in God's grace and mercy. And we're all late to the party. We are. I don't care if you've been walking with Christ for 50 years. You're still late to the party compared to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You know, you're late to the party. Think about it. The master's pay scale is welcomed if you're the one on the short end. If you're the guy that worked one hour, you're loving this pay scale. It's only the guys that worked all day long that had problem with it. A couple of weeks ago, we had, we had this takeaway. A couple of weeks ago. Comparing yourself to others will foster pride and bring about dissatisfaction and destruction. Comparing yourself to God will foster humility and bring about grace and growth. There's a lot of comparison going on in this story. The ones hired first are comparing themselves to the one hired last, and they're dissatisfied, and they can't be happy. We should be happy and thankful that we're not all paid for the amount of work we do. I mean, think about it. If we were all paid for the amount of work we do for Christ, we would be paupers. We should all be thankful that we're not getting paid for the amount of work we do. All right, I got to close. Let's squeeze in a few takeaways. We'll deal with that next week. We'll deal with that next week. Here's a takeaway. 
God will call us to do hard things. But it's always out of love and a desire to see us grow and become more. He's not calling us to do hard things just to make it hard. When God calls you to do something hard, it's not just to make it hard. It's because that's where you need to grow. That's where you need to be stretched. If God could, if God could grow me without doing hard things, I would be down there in the gym every single day. But it's hard down there, which is why I look the way I look. God will call us to do hard things, but it's not punitive. It's really for our best. Let's look at this takeaway. Love does not force people into better decisions, nor does it shield people from the consequences of bad decisions. Love simply shows them a better way. And you need to let this sink in a lot because if you're the parent of children, this is really hard. Jesus loved the rich young man, but he didn't force him into a better decision. And he didn't shield him from the consequences of a bad decision. He simply pointed out a better way. I wish I could tell you I've been really good at this, but I have failed this one more times than I would like to, to think. This is, this tough love is hard stuff. It really is. But, but shielding someone from the consequences of their decision, bad decisions or twisting their arm to make the right decision, that is not love. That's manipulation at best and domination at worst. Uh, so you've got to redefine love. Which leads us to this one. Again, the rich young man thing. Whatever standing between you and entering into the fullness of God's kingdom is not worth it. It just isn't. It is not worth it. There were things I told God, I don't know if I can give this up. I really don't know if I can give this up. It was not worth it to hang on to it. It just really wasn't. You've heard this saying that if God takes something from you, he's going to give it back to you in another way. And oftentimes that does happen. But even if it never happens, it's still not worth it. You know, it, it, it's just not worth it. All right. We're just about out of time here. I think we can do this one maybe. And then we'll stop. We are all equal, equal recipients of God's grace and mercy. We talked about this. Even if you're late to the party, and we're all late to the party. Uh, think of it this way. If you're one of the survivors on the Titanic, does it really matter whether you were saved first or last? If you're one of the few survivors from the Titanic, does it really matter whether you were saved first or last? It doesn't make any difference. What makes a difference is that you were saved. God's grace and mercy are equal, even if we come late to the party and we're all late to the party. We're all snatched out of the icy waters of the Atlantic at the last minute. All right, we need to stop here. Questions, comments? Yes, ma'am. I can't help but think being a nurse and having 
Seems like they got off easy, doesn't it? Deathbed confession. They had to work all these years, and they skated through and had a great time and loved life and then made a confession at the end. Yeah, that's what we think because that's the human piece of us. We are. We are the worst for criticizing. I, was, I, I just purchased a devotion, a devotional by uh, Bob Goff, one of my favorite authors, Bob Goff. And his point was, if you follow Jesus, you will get criticism. Don't be the criticizer. Be the one that lifts them up in the midst of the criticism. Yes? The Bible is God's book of blessings and opportunity. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, if you if you live if you give your life to Christ, submit yourself to Christ and, and live by his word, his intention, um, you'll have a better life than not. Doesn't mean you won't have hardships, uh, but but you'll still be better for it. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Um, the thing that helped me with that about the first and last or how long you've been saved, right? mm-hmm. I got saved later. Me too. Is um, the thief on the cross. Yes, the thief on the cross. That helps me with that because we're here to spread the gospel, be disciple makers, and he wants every soul that we can take to heaven. That's it. Absolutely. If you have two children and one's the good child and the other's the prodigal and they stay a prodigal into their 50s or 40s or wherever, do you as a parent go, you know what, you've had your shot, you've wasted too much time, the good child here, they had it right, yeah, not taking you back anymore. You wouldn't do that. He wouldn't think of doing that. Why do we think God would do that? Anyone else? Okay, I'm tired of listening to me. Let's go home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for these stories. These are rich, rich stories, and we've just barely skimmed the surface on a lot of them. There is so much there for us. Uh, We get such big hurry to skip through things and and get on with things and find the right principle and the right application. We forget to just feel our way through the story. And Father, we are grateful that though we're late to the party, that your grace and your mercy is equal and it's enough. And it's not about how hard we worked or how long we worked. None of that matters. It's all about your generosity and your mercy and your grace. And for that, we say hallelujah and thank you. And may we live in that 
the rest of this week. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. We'll see you next week.